Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. I'm John Lovett. This is Critical Conversations. Uh, you're about to hear an awesome conversation I had with Adam Grant, who is an organizational psychologist and professor of management and psychology at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. We talked about narcissistic politicians. We talked about how to get out the vote. And I actually learned something completely new to me about how to get out the vote, which I honestly want to stop talking now and go fix how we've been saying it. Uh, we talked about groupthink. We talked about his podcast, Work Life. Just listen. Just listen to it. You've done a lot of work sort of drawing on psychology to tell, help us understand politics, help us understand business. I specifically want to talk about how we can use... Oh, I said talk like my mother. We're getting closer to New York. <laughs> uh, wait, till, wait till later this week. Uh, how psychology can fix politics. Um, you say that it can fix it completely with no exceptions. Is that right? No. No? Not right? Okay. Definitely not. Uh, but <laughs> politics is hopeless, but I think we can make it less terrible than it currently is. Let's make politics less terrible. I wanted to start with something that I saw you give a brief talk on that was fascinating, and it was about narcissism in politics. So I just want to start by uh, asking you about something you've written, which is that politics tends to draw more narcissistic people. Why is that, and what can we learn from it? So I don't know if it always has. One of the interesting things is when you track narcissism over time and you get historians and psychologists to rate the speeches and bios of candidates, it's actually gone up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the 1800s, I'm not sure that it was necessarily attracting a lot of narcissists. Today it is. I think part of the problem is that politicians are always on stage, right? They're in the spotlight and what narcissists crave is attention. And so if you wander around where your, your fundamental motivation in life is to have everyone looking at you, what, what would you want to do other than be a politician? Well, Maybe actor. an actor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But your odds are probably higher in politics, right? Right, right. It's easier, right. It's easier to succeed as a politician than an actor just based on the numbers. It's interesting, right, because originally presidential candidates didn't campaign. It was seen as sort of uncouth. They stayed at home while other people did the campaigning, and now they're basically— Don't you miss that? Yeah, yeah. It would be better, I guess. I mean, it couldn't be worse. <laughs> it couldn't possibly be worse. One thing you talked about when you gave this—when you, you were looking at narcissists in politics and how to influence narcissists, you talked about the compliment sandwich, which I think is something that a lot of people use in their life, but— you talked about how it doesn't work as well with someone who is a truly narcissistic person. So, I, you know, I don't know if people know like the compliment sandwich is the, the classic is, you, you know, you lead with a compliment, you insult somebody or give them fair criticism and then close with a compliment. So it's a great way of kind of giving somebody information. Right. Is that no. No, no, it's, no, no. But it's that, bad in general, but it's especially bad with narcissists. A, it's considered to it's be popular. It's popular. Um, so why is it bad and why is it bad with narcissists? So it's bad in general for two reasons. One is that primacy and recency effects are stronger than anything else. So what do you remember from a conversation? Usually it's what happened first and what happened last. And the stuff in the middle just fades away. So the criticism that you really want the person to hear is just going to get glossed over. Mm -hmm. Second mm -hmm. problem is kind of the opposite, which is when people hear the praise up front, they're familiar with this technique and they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so it's like, John, you didn't, 
you didn't really mean that nice thing you said. You were just trying to butter me up. Right, right, right. Okay, so the compliment sandwich doesn't work. So say, telling someone, you're doing such a great job, your writing is terrible, and you come in early and we really appreciate it, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like that method doesn't work. So what is a better version of the compliment sandwich? What, what can we do to adjust it? So we've got two options. One is you just come right out with a criticism. Uh-huh. And you say, all right, look, my, my favorite way to do this is say, you know, John, I've, I've been observing you for a while. Uh, I, I noticed a few things and I, w- I wondered if you wanted to hear any feedback. I don't. No, I do. All I've right. never I'd like had to... <laughs> anyone say no to that. <laughs> I'd like to hear some feedback, Adam. Well, I don't, I don't have any prepared now, okay, good. but I'll, I'll be that's... ready by the end of the discussion. Good. All right. And so you basically just lead with the criticism. Yeah. Give them a chance to opt in. And once they do, you know, they've agreed that it's, it's a conversation they want to have. One thing you, you also had suggested was the open face compliment sandwich, which is... <laughs> that's a that's, great name that's for That's it. my name for it, is uh, where you just, you do compliment, criticism, and stop. Yeah. Does that work? Is that better? That works much better, but you have to be careful about what kind of compliment you give. So the idea is that you can't compliment the person in the same domain that you're criticizing them. Interesting. Uh, and this is where narcissism comes in, because narcissists are, are often motivated to hear only positive things about themselves. And so if you come in with a compliment, let's say you're going to criticize somebody's decision-making skills. Mm-hmm. You don't want to start by complimenting a different decision they made because all they're going to hear is you're a genius at decision-making. Uh-huh. Okay. What you want to okay. do is come in and say, you know, John, you're super creative. You have all these unconventional ideas. I do have some concerns about your judgment in these kinds of decisions. And what happens then, psychologists call it self-affirmation, is you've basically validated something else that's positive about them. And so the criticism stings less because it's not attacking the core of their identity. So let's say, um, let's say there was someone in a, a high-level executive job uh, who was famously narcissistic. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. And uh, you were trying to get them to stop incriminating themselves on social media for <laughs> crimes. What would be your... What would, give us an example, again, hypothetically speaking. What would be an example of a of a non-comp... What an example of the open-faced compliment sandwich that you would use to try to butter this person up to get them to be receptive to changing their behavior? So the first thing I'd do is I'd, I'd study their, their behavior and figure out, okay, what have they been good at other than social media? Second thing is I'd want to figure out of those things, which, are the, which of them are most central to their identity or their self-concept? Because uh, if, I, if I go around and say, you know, you have really good taste in shoes and they don't care about shoes, it's not going to work. So I don't know if I were if I were trying to influence a political figure uh, who has a habit of incriminating him or herself on social media, I'd probably look around and try to figure out some, you know, some other scale like uh, you're you're really good at firing people (laughs) and, you know, you have excellent judgment about when it's time to send somebody out the door. And maybe we should even listen to that more often than we have. Now, let's talk about some social media issues. (laughs) So are you okay? Um, uh. We love how you just speak your mind. But on social media, we're thinking it might behoove you to do it a little bit less. Is that, is that are we closer? I think that's dangerous. Okay. Because if, if speaking your mind is, is the strength, then so social get, media is a tool for close, that. Too close. Too close. Too close. Okay. You have to right, separate them more. I'm learning. Um, you're really good. <laughs> All right. We're done with this. I'm not this is a hard it. exercise for it, you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> You're really good at getting out of, a, <laughs> you're very good at paying hush money to prostitutes <laughs> and adult film stars. You also tweet too much, uh, hypothetically. All right, let's move forward. Uh, 
One of the things you've talked about is how we fail to use psychology to get out the vote. Um, and you've talked about you've talked about something called the want should conflict that sometimes stops people from voting. What is the want should conflict? So most of us, I mean, you, we, we actually all go through this every day. There are things you want to do, and then there are things you think you should do. So basic example is, you know, you should wake up at a reasonable hour, but mm -hmm. you want to sleep in. And most of the time, the want self wins because the want self is always stronger in the moment than the should self. Maybe always is an overstatement. I should say. <laughs> my should self is telling me no uh, i think the you know the, the want self usually has more intense desires in the moment and so okay. it's it's easy for the want self to dominate the should self it's like it's the reason that so many of us are are acting like teenagers more often than we wish it's it's why i ate a bag of oreos i took from the plane totally. uh, this morning which <laughs> presumably you know better yeah i do i do i do know better now the good news about the should self is that the should self is smarter than the want self because the shoulds usually are, are longer term and they're based on moral considerations or judgments about what's actually good for you in the future. And so if you take the waking up example, you set an alarm and then you put your alarm clock halfway across the room and then your should self hopefully has outsmarted the want self into waking up. So we're still lashing ourselves to the mast. Potentially. Right. Okay. And so I think this is a big problem in voting and I, I've experienced this personally. I'm terrible at voting. Uh, it turns out I voted in all the presidential elections. I basically voted for nothing else. Okay. And I look at that behavior and say, I, there are a million other things I would rather do than go to vote. And I feel like I should, but I don't want to go. So that's the conflict. What are, some, what are some tools we're not using enough of to kind of overcome that conflict, to get people motivated to come out and vote that otherwise might not? People like you who are presidential voters, but we need to make them midterm voters too. So one thing we don't do enough is think about our language. So we should use more nouns and fewer verbs. Uh, what the hell does that mean? I have no idea. Let's move on. <laughs> no, what does that mean? What does it mean? Why, more nouns? I, I, don't, um, I don't even know. What, uh, healthcare. No, not that kind of noun. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're supposed to, you're, what, what happens too often is you tell me what to do instead of who to be. So I, I can easily say, you know what? I'm a good person. I'm a you know, devoted citizen but I don't go out and vote. And if you just tell me to vote, you're not going to change that. But if instead you say, why don't you be a voter? Now I have to think about, okay, am I the kind of person who votes? And I want to be that kind of person. And there are a bunch of experiments showing that people are more likely to show up when you invite them to be a voter than just say vote. That is fascinating. I, I want to implement that right away. We tell people at Crooked Media to vote all the time. Be a primary voter. Ooh, I, that, li I like adding primary, too. That feels like be a primary Because I can voter. be a voter without being a primary voter. Right. This be, is really good. Be a, that's really good. We're going to implement this immediately, if probably it, before this even airs. <laughs> if it doesn't work, you should blame Chris Bryan, the Stanford psychologist who launched a lot of this research. Look, it's and, his fault. But here's the good news. As with a ton of, uh, we'll have no double blind and no way of knowing one way or the other. That's so we'll true. be fine. Unless you want to do a randomized controlled trial and release different variations for different uh, audiences. Well, Hillary Clinton did that by uh, not campaigning in Wisconsin, and we didn't really <laughs> didn't go. That well. was not random. <laughs> that was right. That's right. That wasn't random. That wasn't random. So that's really interesting. So, so it's about identity, right? So we need to make people think of themselves as voters, not impelling them to vote. I really just learned something. That's awesome. All My right, work here is done. We'll be back with more of this conversation after the break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Finn. Finn. Everyone has tasks, Tommy, big and small. 
that prevent them from being the best versions of themselves. Does that happen to you? Yeah, it does. Okay. Well, Finn is a high-quality on-demand assistant that can handle the administrative aspects of life, declutter your to-do list, and keep you focused on what matters oh, most. That sounds helpful. We don't need that because we have a wonderful staff for that. But maybe you do. Maybe but some people need it. Actually, Finn is hosting uh, Love It or Leave It on Friday. <laughs> the- <laughs> Taking some training. Travis is running all of his jokes through Finn. (laughs) Thousands of busy people already rely on Finn to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or even more complex jobs like creating a website or hiring a freelancer. There are just not enough hours in the day to get everything done. Finn is the perfect personal assistant available 24-7, 365 days a year. Finn can take care of all aspects of planning a trip. Flights, dinner reservations, a hotel within minutes of where you want to be for meetings. Finn's just showing off now. Really? You don't even have to lift a finger to have an amazing trip. Finn mixes the best of human and artificial intelligence to deliver a top-flight service to manage your calendar, book appointments, take care of travel. Is Finn going to take over my life? Like, <laughs> I think so. Should we be worried about I Finn? I think Finn is me. Okay. Finn learns and remembers your preferences, <laughs> like that you prefer aisle seats, knows your default meeting lengths, and your favorite restaurants. Short. Yeah, my, my default <laughs> meeting length is five minutes. Don't have them. Um... You don't need to spend your time recruiting, training, and managing an assistant. Finn can do it all. On average, Finn can save you 200 hours a year. If you're someone who doesn't have 40 hours of work for an assistant every week, the best part is with Finn, you only pay for what you use. Once you try Finn, you're going to love it. And as a listener of our show, we've arranged for all of you to try Finn for free. Ooh. Just use this link, finn.com slash crookedconvos. That is finn.com slash crookedconvos to try Finn for free. Finn.com slash crookedconvos. Plural. So, all right, we've solved narcissistic politicians. We've solved getting out the vote. Now let's talk about the outcomes that we get inside in politics from our narcissists after they've been elected. Um, one problem you've identified, and I think we see it all the time, is something you call call group polarization. After discussion, groups end up endorsing a more extreme version of what their members thought before they even started to talk. Why does that happen? So you get a group of people, they're debating tax policy, they're trying to come up with an idea, and they end up with the more extreme version than any of them believed before they started. How does that happen? Yeah, it happens in a bunch of ways. What's disturbing about it is when you, when you think on your own, you're not really sure what other people think. You wonder about, okay, how should I cater my opinions to different audiences? You know, what are the different stakeholders out there? What, you know, what might be different arguments worth considering? When you get together with a group of people who are roughly like-minded, it's really easy to anticipate that they're all going to buy into your arguments. And so what you do is you don't moderate anymore, right? You say, okay, these people all agree with me, so I'm going to give the most extreme form of my argument. And then everybody else is going through the same thought process too. And then I, they end up just <laughs> intensifying each other. You've never been part of that. It's never happened to you, of course, John. Honestly, I think we just invented Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Reinvented. So, yeah. so, so then... So I mean, we, it's, an, it's, it's an echo chamber problem in a nutshell, right? So it's an echo chamber problem... That's inevitable. It's inevitable that, you know, let's say a White House, you're going to have a group of like-minded people trying to solve a problem, right? Is it? I don't know that it's inevitable. I mean, I, Lincoln, it's, it's too easy to go to Lincoln. But when I think about Lincoln's team of rivals, I don't think it's impossible to say we could have a, you know, a president who, who goes to opponents and political enemies and says, you know what, I disagree with you, but I need you to be challenging me in order to make good decisions. I think that's fair. And I... And I of course, there should be ideological disagreement. It should be exposed to the alternate idea. But I guess what I would be referring to more is when you're it's, you know, politics is about getting something done. And if you have a Do you really of, believe that. 
Ultimately, yeah, I do. I do. I, I believe that's what... In an ideal world. In an ideal world. I, I believe there, there are plenty of people who view politics as a means of getting things done. I guess if I'm being the most cynical rendering of an optimistic version of it to me is politics is the means by which we convert narcissism and selfishness into human progress. How about that? That's not actually that cynical even. Uh, yeah, that's, I guess not. Uh, it has a dark edge to it, I suppose. I think you could, I think, I think John and, John John and I have, John rolls his eyes when I would make that version of it. But, but, um, let's say we are trying to pass a healthcare bill. Yeah. You want to be exposed to alternative ideas. And, and in the, in the writing of Obamacare, for example, there was a six to nine month period where the Obama administration was working with Chuck Grassley, working with Olympia, uh, working with, uh, Olympia Snow. She's gone. God, the senators leave and you forget them. But the, C- Collins and Snow in, in Maine trying to come up with a bipartisan compromise, right? It started from a heritage proposal. It's this debate. And ultimately, we don't get help from Republicans in that. And so who makes the decision? Who writes the bill? A group of Democrats together kind of grappling with one side of the ideological mm-hmm. debate. Inevitably, if let's say we we're going to pursue single payer, you can have a group of people in that room who all believe in single payer, right? Isn't that that's what I mean by saying it's an un- inevitable that you will end up with people in agreement trying to make a decision. Yeah, I think some of that is inevitable. I think, though, I mean, this <laughs> I part of the reason that I don't spend a lot of time in in Washington is I just don't believe in the fundamental premise of having political beliefs to begin with. So why why as a social scientist, it boggles my mind to say that anyone would believe in a certain system. I want to know what works and I want to gather the best data I can about what, what, what works and what works is going to change over time. And it's going to be different in different contexts. And so, you know, to have an ideology that says, well, we need a single payer system. I'm like, well, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Show me the evidence. Right. Well, I'd say, I would say the, a better interpretation of someone who has a consistent ideology would be like, I consider myself to be someone who both cares about what works and has a consistent ideology. And what I'd say is I'm open to all ideas. What I have found in my experience, which is biased and based on you know, seeking information that confirms what I've previously held, but trying my best to be objective, trying my best as a flawed person to figure out the truth. I have noticed again and again that I come to think that a liberal answer is better mm-hmm. than a conservative one. And that's why I'm a liberal, right? Yep. Isn't that, that's my rend- that's my reading of the world. Got it. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's a value <laughs> statement, right? No, no. I mean, I'm not surprised by well, that. Well, but... no, I'm not saying it's a value statement. No, I, I'm calling a... it a statement. A, I'm saying it's a, it's a, it's a handy guide to figuring out the world for me. Yes. And no, but that makes sense to me, right? Because what you're what you're referencing there is that you have a consistent set of values which lead you to, you know, over time as you think about different issues, land in a particular set of places, right? Which I, I don't have a problem with that. And and but so and also by the way, because it's not what works doesn't dictate the values. My definition of what it means to work is dictated by a set of beliefs about what the, what what out what outcomes I want for human beings? Yes, right. Yeah, and this is where things get tricky, right? When you know, because nobody can agree on what works because they value different outcomes, right? I mean, just take the debate about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcomes. It's a simple, a simple example. But I think what's what's weird to me about all of this is that your values or your your political ideology would spill over into a really specific set of policy preferences. And there's there's some fun studies which show that if you ask people why they believe in a certain ideology. Uh, they they only get more entrenched and more more polarized. If instead you just ask them, well, tell me about your preferred policy. How does it work? How would you implement that? They start to realize how little they know and understand, and how complex most policy issues are. And then they actually moderate and become more centrist. Interesting. So, barring a kind of idealistic, I think 
ultimately not workable situation where you have like what John McCain said he wishes he did, which is make John make uh, Joe Lieberman as vice president mm-hmm. have this bipartisan bonami, a word I use once every three years <laughs> at best. At I don't most. think I've ever heard that word said out loud before. <laughs> Nicely done. Thank you. Uh, barring that, barring sort of like ideological harmony inside of a Democratic administration, inside of a Republican policymaking process, how would you challenge groupthink, even if it's not ideological, right, on policy? What would you bring into the conversation? So I think where I would start is I would say when we look at why groupthink happens, it happens because of, it seems, two major motivations. One is, is image. People, you know, wanting to maintain a, a good reputation or set of relationships with, the, with their constituents or their bosses. And then the other is some degree of overconfidence, which is you get surrounded by this like-minded group of people and it becomes really easy to overlook the places where you might be wrong. And so I guess I would start by wanting to, to fight both of those motivations. So, you know, I might give people a chance to submit anonymous ideas. Uh, which is, you know, not something that adults should ever have to do. <laughs> but, you know, just, just as a starting point, what I might do is I'd take a policy issue and say, all right, everybody go around the room. We're going to have you all write down, you know, your, your views and not put your name on them. And then we're going to put them in a hat. And then everybody's going to have to speak for a view that they didn't write. <laughs> just, just to make sure that we're not missing out on some ideas. And, and brainstorming research has shown that that's one of the ways to, to get people's, you know, honest dissenting opinions on the table if you have no, no other recourse. It's interesting that you're just even suggesting that kind of an exercise. I, I think that doesn't happen in a lot of places. You will find writers' rooms. You will find groups of people who have thought about this a little bit, who might have read something you've written or kind of tried to understand decision-making to the point where let's introduce something like this. Let's introduce a little bit of this kind of thinking about how to make decisions into our world, it does not exist in politics. Really? No, does it's it? that bad? You would never have a, I have never seen an, a group of policy people sit around in like a campaign or say like, all right, let's do something where we all take a different point of view. You just don't, I don't think you see anything like that. It's, I mean, to me, that's, that's embarrassing. Your whole job is to make decisions and you know nothing about the science of decision making and how to not screw this up. I think that I would say, that at its best, like in the, let's say the Obama administration, you see uh, an understanding of the value of rivals, of, of having full arguments, of hashing things out, mm-hmm. right? But I think that across politics is the best you'll get. Let's have a full debate. Wow. Let's figure out a way to have a debate. But I don't think there's really a, been a lot of thinking about it beyond that. I don't even want to get, I don't want to have the debate. <laughs> I mean, I, we're, we'll get that, right? But I don't want to, I think the problem is when you, when I've seen groups do that, and I, mostly my exposure has been in the Pentagon, the debate's at the beginning, and I think the debate belongs at the end. So if you think about if you think about a typical political decision, the you're, you, what you're imagining is it's like a jury in a trial, and you've all sat through the trial, and now we're here to debate. You know, is is the candidate innocent or guilty, or the defendant innocent or guilty? The problem is that I think most policy decisions are more like a jury trial where you have twelve jurors, and each of them has sat through a different hour of the trial. Right. And so they have completely different experiences and information, and if you come together to debate, you're you're actually missing critical knowledge. And so what I want to do is, is start by going around the room and figuring out what does everyone know? And then once we have all that expertise on the table, then we can begin to discuss. Right. It's also, also back even to the healthcare example. It's a group of jurors who have witnessed a different trial and who have a different definition of what a crime is. Yeah. Be- because on healthcare, you know, I think about the absence of, sort of intra-democratic consideration for whatever other ideas that might have come from the Republican side. And one of the problems is 
it's hard to have a debate when you have a different goal, right? I think, I, I don't know what it would even look like to have a policy debate where both Democrats and Republicans agree that we should make sure every single person has access to health care without having to worry about money or without having to worry about going bankrupt. It's even even coming, even finishing that second half of the sentence, it's hard to find something where you could even imagine an agreement because as you know, I would say, I would like to see a single payer system or I, I believe that that is what I based on what I know now, that is a preferred policy outcome for me because I know it won't bankrupt people. I know that Medicare works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I couldn't come up with a, a way of saying to a group of conservatives, let's have a policy debate where we want the same outcome because they don't even want they don't want that outcome. And, and I'm not not because they're evil. They have a different idea of what the role of government should be in healthcare. I, I think that's fascinating. And actually, you know, it makes me think of about a dozen years ago, I started teaching negotiation. And one of the most valuable things that I learned when I was when I was working as a negotiator and then going through training and then teaching the class was. You never want to have a negotiation before you've negotiated about what the negotiation is about. So you meta-negotiate before you negotiate. And I rarely have seen this happen in my limited exposure to, to Washington, right? Which is, you know, instead of arguing about policies, let's first sit down and say, what's a desirable goal? And how do we get on the same page about what the outcome should look like? If we could ever get to that point, it would be a lot easier than to probably hash out some reasonable middle ground. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by HBO. Tommy, you may have heard about a brand new series coming to HBO that explores the inner workings of a growing media company. Uh, yeah, it gives me constant anxiety, John. Except it's called Secession. Oh, oh what a twist. they got us. They twisted us. It's not our show yet. That's right, it's Succession. I have been, before we even got this ad, I've been seeing the previews for Secession before mm -hmm. Westworld or some of their other shows. Yeah. It looks so fucking good to the point where we had a meeting at hbo last week and we were complaining to everyone who had listened to us that we wanted an early screener please of succession please show us please let us watch the show or we love it from adam mckay director of the big short oh we love adam mckay funny. and in the loop writer jesse armstrong comes the latest hbo drama set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of new york city and beyond succession stars brian cox as logan roy the founder of one of the world's biggest media companies hmm as he prepares to hand over control to his children. But when Logan has a change of heart, the family's true colors come out. Drama. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a lot of drama, a lot of fun. It's a show I will be watching nonstop. It feels like we're, uh, we're alluding to uh, some things that happened in reality, some people around us, some dark forces in the media world. With we children probably, who are maybe taking over. We probably shouldn't name names. No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to say... We will say that it premieres this Sunday at 10 p.m. Oh, it's this Sunday. I just learned that by reading this ad. Me too, on HBO. I've yes. been catching up with Westworld. I've been catching up with Silicon Valley. It took me into a dark, weird place, but I loved every minute of it. I can't wait to watch this. Succession. Check it out. HBO. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. The other thing this, this makes me think about is, 
I think we're we're really bad at uh, at appealing to the right values when when we do occasionally have these kinds of you know bipartisan debates or you know even discussions. So one thing I'd be curious about over the past few years as I've waded a little bit into conversations about policy, politics is what does left right even mean, and why is it that people you know who are on the left, you know, value the same 11 or 12 issues. And why do those line up so neatly? They shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, most of our beliefs are pretty complex. And so it's, it's weird that just a single left-right dimension accounts for so much of, you know, of our divides. And it turns out that if you, if you break down left-right, uh, the, the best social science that I've read on this, this is John Jost and colleagues, uh, they seem to think that, that basically liberal conservative differences boil down to tolerance for inequality and desire for change. And so conservatives fundamentally are more accepting of, of inequality and more accepting of stability. Uh, liberals are more likely to push for change and equality, essentially. Does that ring true for you? Or is that, is that missing anything before I go well, further? you know, I think it's, I think tolerance of inequality makes sense. I think change I think it depends what you mean. Social right? change. Social. So social change. Yes, right. I would think that's. I, yeah. I think that's right. I actually think one of the things that's interesting is where is right now. I think for a lot of people, there's a real tension between social change and inequality because I think in part because the Republican Party has on a lot of issues and has alienated a lot of cosmopolitan people who believe in diversity, believe in gay rights, believe in women's rights. I think that there's this cohort of people who I would self-identify as liberals, but in another era would be Rockefeller Republicans because mm -hmm. what they really are are sort of moderate, right-leaning people who believe gay people deserve equal rights and, and are yep. uncomfortable with social conservatism in some way. So they're, they're socially liberal, but maybe more fiscally conservative. Right, which is, and, and I th which is, I think, why a lot of times, that's something I've noticed specifically in L.A. too, among a mm. set of successful writers, successful actors, because they believe so thoroughly, because gay rights is a shibboleth, and, and choice is a shibboleth, um, yep. they can't identify as conservatives in ways where, when, when you really push them, they don't have a strong set of views on taxes. They don't have a strong set of views on inequality. They bought in because of the social aspect of politics. That's really interesting. So it, it makes me wonder about, you know, where... <laughs> what what can we do to you know to get out of some of this polarization? And one of the data points that I've liked best recently is this work by Rob Willer. Oftentimes, there are liberal causes that fall on deaf conservative ears because of the way that they're framed. Mm -hmm. So, if you think about women's rights, for example, or gay rights, or um, or actually any any group that's you know historically marginalized or discriminated against, and and how to give them rights, liberals always frame it as a justice issue, an equality issue maybe a compassion issue. And conservatives are thinking about a different set of values often. And they seem to be then, you know, th there's this liberal reaction, which is, oh, you know, you, you don't have a heart and soul. You don't care about other people. Uh, you know, you're, you're racist, you're sexist, you're biased, you're, you know, fill, fill in the, the blank. And what, what Rob shows is that actually there's another set of values that these, these same goals can be framed in terms of, which is freedom. Yeah. It's it's one. It's the fundamental American value, but two, it's pretty much the only core value that's deeply endorsed by both conservatives and liberals. And so, you know, if you if you take, uh, I'm most familiar with this in the in the women's rights arena. If you take you know something like we we want to fight discrimination against women, and change it to we want to give women freedom to choose, 
all of a sudden that is a, an idea that has bipartisan appeal. It's weird to me that doesn't happen more often. Do you have a sense of why? I don't know. I don't know. That's interesting. That that reframing it as the you know freedom to succeed, freedom to have opera, freedom to get jobs that pay the same, right? It's it's interesting. And I have on the freedom front, there have been people who have written here and there about trying to take the word freedom back because they see the value of it. Uh, another example is Robbie Kaplan, who brought the case, the 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 Windsor case that helped lead to marriage equality. One thing she talks about is making a switch because she knew she was arguing in front of conservatives from talking about equality to talking about dignity. Yes. And that dignity is once you when you really get down to it, dignity is just the conservative word for equality. You can't actually parse out that much of a difference of what it ultimately means to say that people have dignity. What they mean is they're the same. People are all deserve to be treated the same way. Um, or that everyone deserves to be treated with some level of decency. Right, 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 yeah. right. And that that was an effective way of kind of switching the, the, the rubric for people. That's really interesting. You know, as I, as I think about some of what I've read about American history on some of these issues. So suffrage movement back in the 1800s, one of the reasons that the, um, that the movement started gaining traction is you had all these extremely conservative uh, abolitionist women who got behind the right to vote. And previously they had been completely opposed to it. You know, there's this big argument that said a woman's place is in the home and, you know, we don't want to mix sort of the male and female spheres. And suddenly they're, they're big advocates for suffrage. And when you break down why, sociologists have analyzed it really carefully. What they find is that it was essentially presented as a, a freedom to protect your home argument. That one of the big problems women faced in their homes at the time was men coming home drunk and, and being abusive verbally and physically. And uh, these, you know, the, these very progressive suffragists uh, led by Lucy Stone and others were able to, to take this argument and say, you know, it's, it's not so much that we, we want you to go to work. It's that we want you to have the freedom to be safe in your own home. And all of a sudden, that sounds like an issue that I want to support, regardless of whether I'm liberal or conservative. Right. And it, it does. It moves the debate into the place where they felt safest to have it. Right. A debate over what's happening in the home. So you're no longer debating home versus work or home versus outside where there'd been this long history of prejudice against women into a place where they feel like that is their space, a space that they should control. That's exactly right. And I think it helped also, they had a, they had a leader of the movement, Francis Willard at the time, who was you know, known to be very moderate. And so it didn't look like it was a cause being sold by liberals, which is kind of neat. That's another ta uh, issue resolved, which is groupthink <laughs> in politics. Uh, Done. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about your podcast, Work Life. First of all, what, what is it? And, and, and what, 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 what's the subject? What is, it, what is a Work Life podcast? So my, my goal, basically, my job is to fix other people's jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a travesty that most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work in jobs that we don't find meaningful or motivating. And so my goal is to make work suck less. And I started the podcast because I've, over the, the last decade or so, I've met some really fascinating people who are working in ways that I think could enrich all of our lives. And I wanted to, to basically highlight the things they've mastered that everybody else should know. So that was the goal. What, what are some... What are some obvious mistakes people are making in how they spend their time at work where they, they, they could be happier in their work, but they're not if they just, what's this, what's the one weird trick? Oh, there's always one, isn't there? There's so it can many. Be three weird tricks. I'll give you three weird tricks. Okay. The first one is I think that people feel like there's a trade-off between confidence and humility. There's not. Actually, the most compelling stance is confident humility. And there's a fun term for that, uh, which, is, uh, which is actually humble narcissism. So narcissism is about believing that you could be great and, you know, aiming really high, <laughs> having a bold vision, you know, being ambitious, that part of it anyway. 
humility is, is knowing you're fallible. You're human. You can make mistakes. You always have something to learn. And so there's this, this sweet spot that combines the two. I think, you know, nobody wants to call themselves a, nobody wants to call themselves a narcissist. But <laughs> when you think about the, the, the good parts of narcissism and the good parts of humility, it's possible to have humble confidence. And I think that when, when we think about this at work, whether you're applying for a job or negotiating a raise, it's very you know, easy to, to feel like, okay, I only have two options. One is to sell myself as really outstanding. And the other is to say, you know what, I'm, I know that I have all these flaws. And the, the sweet spot there is to say, you know what, here are all my flaws. And here's why I believe that I'm, a, I'm really worth it anyway. Or here's why I believe that I will do a great job despite these shortcomings. And I don't think we, we have enough people who, who strike that balance. Just being basically being honest in what they believe they're good at and honest in what they believe they're not good at. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of people are not self-aware about, but yeah. it's really easy then to go to your colleagues and say, right, this is another fun tip, is uh, almost every organization I went to, when people work closely together, they are now writing kind of an operating man manual, which is how to work with me. You, you get these anytime you buy a new piece of technology, but it's weird that you don't get it when you have to work with a new person. Right, like what are, what are my trigger points? Where, 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 do, I, where do I get upset? Exactly. Where am I easy? Here's, here are the things you can do to make me work better. Bingo. And how we can work more effectively together if we know that about each other. Right, right, And right. so one thing you can do is, is go to your colleagues and say, you know what, can you write a manual for how to work effectively with me? Do it at your own risk. <laughs> Maybe don't try this at home. I don't know that we should do this. <laughs> uh, wait, so I don't know if that counts as tip number two. It doesn't. Okay, what's tip number two? Uh, tip number two is that it's possible to enjoy being criticized. Maybe. You can, you can at least learn to crave criticism. Okay. And the, the way that, that I was taught to do this is to recognize that when somebody's about to give you negative feedback, they've already decided that you, know, you deserve it. And so if somebody's coming in to give you a D minus, you can't undo the D minus, right? You've, you've already earned it in their eyes. All you can do is say, all right, I want to try to get an A plus for how I respond to the D minus. And so the idea this comes from, from some cool work in psychology is that you want to give yourself a second score. And say, all right, whatever the first score is that the person's giving me in an evaluation, I now want to get a, a good second score for how well I took the first score. And I've got to tell you, I, I, I normally find you know, some of these ideas pretty cheesy. This has been one of the most useful things that I've ever learned. Every time I stand up in front of a classroom and uh, my students have written you know, anonymous criticisms of the class, I put it all on the board. And I say, look, you know, they've, they've already evaluated me in my class at this point in the semester. And so I'm not going to change. If there's something they don't like, I'm not going to convince them that it's actually good. All I can do is convince them that I am open to feedback and that I want to get better. And it completely changes the way that I, that I process it, right? Instead of these people attacking me and me feeling defensive, I'm walking in thinking I've got a bunch of students who are going to coach me to make a better class, which is good for me and good for them. Uh, Does that sound crazy to you? No, it's, it's um, <laughs> I, like, I think that I do a slightly narcissistic version of that, which is demand praise for having accepted criticism and done better as a result uh i don't know that, that the way that you're just wanting credit for your progress right yeah that that, that i think that to me like, is i admit that, that I i've use, grown yes I, I, <laughs> literally i think i've turned to sarah to admit that i've grown <laughs> but um that's really interesting okay so what's uh what's our third tip so a third tip let me think about this for a second this is this is where the pressure gets gets high um Oh, well, okay, so this is fun. Um, so one of the things I did was I wanted to learn how to build trust. And so I thought, okay, you know, where, where are the stakes the highest on trust building? And eventually I said it's at the International Space Station because if you can't trust fellow astronauts, you die. Right. Naturally, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so it turns out NASA has this, for years, they didn't do anything to prepare people for the social and behavioral aspects of missions. It was all about the technology. And then, you know, they realized that missions only succeeded when people were able to work together as a team. And so they started doing this wilderness training where they send astronauts out together to, you know, try to navigate these mountains where they have no idea where they're going and they're set up to make all these mistakes and it's really stressful. And the, the thing that I learned from it from talking to a bunch of astronauts is we build trust the wrong way. So when I want to trust somebody, I get together with them once a week or once a month. We have lunch, we have coffee. And what, what NASA has discovered is you never really move the relationship forward when you do that, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're always sort of rewinding to where you were and then having to get back to the point of comfort. So what NASA does is they do deep dives in a short period of time and they say, you're going to spend the next 11 days together, day in, day out. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that with any of your colleagues. I am saying, though, uh, if you're going to spend 10 hours with somebody, it is much, much more valuable to spend those 10 hours with them in one week than it is spread across five or six weeks. And so the deeper you go, the more you, you open up and get vulnerable in that interaction and the more you sort of take off the mask of the impression that people are trying to make. And so I think that I also think dating is done wrong based on this. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, well, first of all, you've made an argument for corporate retreats, which I think people are going to be really angry at you about. But, the, uh, <laughs> but, but no, but, no, but it's supposed to be stressful. Here's the other thing. It has to make you vulnerable. So we, don't, we shouldn't do a corporate retreat where we just have a softball game unless everybody sucks at softball or really cares about the stakes. So people have to do stuff that they're bad at or at least something that exposes them in some way. Yeah, it, it has to bring out their human side. And so um, Dan Coyle has a fun term for this. He says, not Dan Coyle, Dan Coyle. I want to yeah. be really clear. Uh, <laughs> he says that most corporate retreats are shallow fun. And what you want is deep fun. And deep fun is when you, you get together with a group of people to work on a hard problem that's important. And you don't even notice you're having fun in the moment because you're, you're just focused on the problem. And it's, mm. it's not that enjoyable every second. But you look back on that and you say, wow, that was a great challenge. And I'm proud of what we accomplished. Interesting. It's probably right. actually describing your speechwriting days. Deep fun. No? Yeah. I mean, I guess that there's some. I think so. Although it's less writing is never as collaborative. I would say writer's room in L.A. are deep fun. And it is why you end up at the end of these. Uh, like a, a writing job for a show, people do end up being close because you do spend 10 hours a day really grinding out hard problems that sometimes you don't think you're going to solve. And it is true that at the end of those processes, you end up with writer's room that are really tight. Mm-hmm. They kind of travel together often or stay together, stay in touch, remain friends. Um, so there, that is true. Well, I wonder how you would apply that to dating because it is crazy that that we basically... It's almost like we, we want the, the deepening trust to happen naturally. So we spend the hours talking and much of it is perfunctory, I guess. So based on what I learned, if I were going to redesign The Bachelor, uh-huh. what I would do is... You Cancel have, it? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Without question. But if it, if it has to exist, mm-hmm. uh, you take all the candidates and you give them each one week with, with The Bachelor or Bachelorette. Sequentially, right? Not, not in parallel. Right. And right, then right. after it, you have a sense of, of who you had the best connection with when you really spent real time together. Uh, I think that is a very boring show. To just describe <laughs> <laughs> just ten horrible vacations. Yeah, but you could juxta. I think you can make it into a good show. You could juxtapose the same kinds of scenes with different people. All right, and All see right. the connect. I don't know. This is not you know my, what, though? my forte. There is something to be said for a psycho- a psychologically driven bachelor like show where you do have ten contestants. They spend each spends their a period of time with the bachelor. And then you edit together the different things they had to do, Jenga, trust falls, whatever <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I think we could take this back into politics too. 
Oh no. Who do I <laughs> who are we making spend time with Mitch McConnell? No one. No, no one. No, no. <laughs> I remember uh, that joke. <laughs> you spend time with Mitch McConnell, right? You spend time. That that's, the line? that's exactly the line. Did you write that line? Um I don't want to take I trying to I believe so, but I don't I don't remember anymore because there are so many joke speeches and <laughs> they go through so many iterations but it was, great if it was good if it was good i probably did it but no, I, I don't know <laughs> I, I have been dreaming that this is I, I can't i can't imagine a world in which this happens but i would love to get your take on it if i were going to start a political party as somebody who doesn't believe in mm-hmm. political parties i mean what we're trying to do for the presidency for example is we're trying to elect the best leader well i study leadership right we know a lot about what makes a good leader i want decision making skills i want vision i want interpersonal skills around negotiation and conflict resolution and so i will elevate whatever candidate demonstrates the best leadership skills yeah, I would say that that's a terrible idea. Why? Uh, it's obviously bad. So I would like to take, I think that we should do that in a primary. Oh. Because when you say vision, competence is incredibly important. Experience, the ability to move through a, an incredibly complex bureaucracy, to work with Congress, all the facets that go into whether or not you will succeed in implementing your vision. But what we do now is we start with, we start with vision and they're incompatible, right? That's what we're having a contest right. about. So, because so, I mean, we can have a like Mick Mulvaney um, is somebody that I think is doing incredible damage to the country, but he is quite adroit at taking the, the, the reins of a bureaucracy and making it worse for people, right? That's what he's doing right now. He's, he is, he's having some trouble because I think moving any bureaucracy is hard, but he has taken over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's taken over the Office of Management and Budget, and he is moving them uh, inexorably towards his vision which is heinous to me. So I don't know that we can have a competence party until we've had a very successful debate over vision. Yeah, okay. So we, we, need, we need some screens on values. Okay. So what if, uh, I, I've been thinking, the only way we really get to see this in a way that, that compares apples to apples is a debate, mm-hmm. right? And it's too easy for both sides to believe that their candidate won. So what if instead the candidates had to re- play a forecasting tournament? And you say, okay, we're just going to have you make predictions in the next three months. Is, uh, is unemployment going to go up or down? And take a whole list of you know, political and economic issues, domestic and foreign, where there are objective answers. You can't skew what's, what's actually happened and what hasn't. And then let's just see which candidates do the best job. Could, could we do that? It's, you know, it's funny. You, you, um, Steven Pinker talks about the similar problem of forecasting in his book. Mm-hmm. And and basically how we have this total disconnect between who's good at forecasting and, and who's, who's good not. At, yeah. And we need to figure out how to incorporate better forecasting into what we do. I I think it's a great idea. You know, it's... The, Did you the, just say great idea? I think it's a great idea to do a little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 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 the reason... I, I, what, I, what, I'm, what I was thinking about when you were talking about kind of implementing that kind of an exercise, but I don't know that we could do it over time with the actual elected people. I think it'd be nice to put our pundits through their paces. But one of the problems we have is competence, vision, policy, they're all swirled together. Mm-hmm. The closest thing we had, I think, to that kind of a debate recently was the 2008 Democratic primary, because ultimately Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, there's, you know, every, there, there's a lot of parsing now, but ideologically, they were incredibly in sync. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a few areas of foreign policy where Barack Obama was a bit to the left. There were areas of Domestic policy where Hillary Clinton was a little bit to the left, but for the most part, that was not a policy or ideology ultimately driven uh, campaign, though I think the Obama team was successfully successful in sort of framing it as one, framing it as one. 
uh, and good for them. And you know what, what they they were it was sort of an ideology around the role of not even the role of government, but sort of the role of political figures, I guess. But but that was a place where we had sort of what you're talking about, which is like who's going to be better at doing this stuff. Hmm. But that's not that didn't move people. It had to be inspirational. It had to be much more vision oriented. All right, so maybe maybe we have to ramp it up a little bit. Let's have the candidates play board games. And then we can see who wins. So take Jenga. That would be fun. Mm-hmm. I would love to watch a game of Monopoly. And, you know, we can catch one of the candidates stealing money from the bank. Right. Yeah. Who, who, who has a temper tantrum and throws the pieces across the room, which is the trouble. end of every Monopoly game. <laughs> but I think it would be so much Settlers fun. Settlers of Catan might be better because Settlers strategy of Catan. Strategy-wise. It's strategy. Yeah. Uh, you always feel like you're losing the whole time. You know, you basically everyone feels like they're about to lose for the last half an hour of the game. I think it brings out a lot. Uh, my friend Josh and I definitely. Uh, almost lost our friendship over a game of Settlers of Catan, <laughs> uh, which did end up with me Amazing. throwing the pieces. Um, but I was going so through not something. For you then. He was going through something. I would not vote for that version of me. I would definitely <laughs> the the me that threw those pieces not electable and shouldn't be elected. Smart, but I've grown and I haven't thrown a board game since. When how long ago is this? Admit that I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> You've grown, John. You've grown. This how is long? at least a decade. This is this is we're talking twelve, right. thirteen years ago. I feel like you could be a different person in a decade. Thanks, Adam. I, but why, why limit it to one game, right? So we, right, right. The tournament. Yeah, like, like American Ninja Warrior. We have a whole bunch of different events that showcase different skills. How fun, Ninja- would it get, how fun would it be to get people behind this? Yeah, a board game. I would, uh, I would love, we could, we could start by, um, we'd, have to, we'd have to kind of trick them into it. So we need to start with some sort of charitable cause. Um, a board game. Yeah, we should do oh, that. But it would, if, you, if you added in Trivial Pursuit, we could filter out all the ignorant candidates. Oh, well, then who? <laughs> Not a lot of people left. All right. I've, so we've now solved, we've solved political narcissism, getting out the vote, groupthink, and just how to be happier at work. Couldn't have done it without you. Uh, Adam Grant, thank you so much for being here. This was a fantastic, fascinating conversation. You should all subscribe to Work Life. Are we saying Work Life or Work Life? I've heard it both ways, but I think it's Work Life with Adam should- Grant. Work life with, like that. Subscribe to Work Life with Adam Grant uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Adam, thank you so much. It was awesome. Thank you, John. This is a blast. Thanks for listening to Crooked Conversations. Thanks to Adam Grant for being here. Thanks, thanks for listening. I mean, honestly, you should thank us because that was really good. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.